Hello and welcome back to Radio Feral and Bambos. It has been a weird February. We're going to get into some of the events that have happened, but has it been a busy month for you? Uh, yes, it has been. Uh, I've been with my new um, brief at Shadow Middle East Minister. I've been meeting ambassadors uh, and uh, NGOs, uh, spoken in debates about the Yazidi genocide and Palestinian statehood um, and um, meeting lots of experts uh, in the field. So it's been really interesting in that perspective. And I've also been doing my constituency visits and helping constituents with their casework. So it's um, it's been a busy month and obviously we've got the, uh, the issue of Ukraine, which um, is deeply, deeply worrying, which has happened over the last few days. Yes, indeed. And I actually spoke to Bim Afalami a little bit earlier this week. And since then, showing the speed of this, um, you know, ever worrying situation, the the situation has really deteriorated from that earlier discussion in the week. So in your role as part of the, the Shadow Home Office, can you discuss more about the details of this worrying situation and also what you feel about Britain's response to this? Well, uh, I'm actually in the Shadow Foreign uh, Affairs team, so I've moved from Home Office to Foreign Affairs. But um, uh, and David Lamb has been and Stephen Downton doing an amazing job for us uh, leading on that. Um, I, I'm deeply uh, worried about the situation. So clearly, um, any invasion of a democratic uh, country is, uh, and the uh, I imagine the attempted overthrow of an elected government is going to be deeply worrying. Um, I know people have got concerns about family members. I've had a number of emails. Uh, I've, I've had at least uh, 20 or 30 emails about uh, the situation in Ukraine. Um, I did a school visit today to Winchmore School, and I did a Q&A with some of the students there. And many of them were really concerned about Ukraine. They, some of the younger kids were worried about whether we would get invaded by Russia. Um, so there is concern. Uh, and it's it's filtering through to um, to children as well, so that's also a concern because it's causing fear. Um, we heard in, the, in recent days that the government would be introducing some sanctions, and something we very much support. Um, and but we need to make sure that those sanctions are um, sanctions that are also introduced by uh, other countries. Um, so we need Europe and America to hold fast on these sanctions and see if they uh, provide the effect that we need. We also need to make sure we provide um, support for Ukraine, uh, particularly humanitarian and medical support, which they'll desperately need. Uh, and I know that military support has also been provided in the form of equipment rather than boots on the ground, uh, which again, I think is also something that they greatly appreciate. And so just with the uh, discussion point there, a lot of people in your area, I'm sure across the country as well, they may be worried about loved ones who might be stuck in Ukraine. And if there is a, a passage or a way for them to get out, what is the, the situation maybe in terms of refugees and maybe resettling in the UK? Well, uh, I would very much support that. I think uh, anybody that's fleeing from uh, a place where there's war um, should be welcomed by uh, not just the neighbouring countries, by, but wider European countries. So I think we should also play our role in welcoming anyone who uh, is a refugee from um, the Ukraine, particularly if they have a connection to the UK. 
So I hope the government will consider setting up some sort of scheme that would allow people fleeing Ukraine if they have a UK connection to come over here and, and to stay with their family members. And um, if constituents get in contact with you uh, with you over that issue, is this something that you can help with or, or do the rules over refugees and, and things like that complicate the matter at all? Um, they may do. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think I very much hope the government will come forward with uh, a proposed scheme, but I will certainly be following up the uh, issues that my constituents raise uh, and trying to do the best I can for them. Uh, especially if it's in relation to loved ones. We did the same for people who are concerned about friends and family in Afghanistan, and I would do the same again over Ukraine. And the final question on this issue is, do you believe that the government's response has been strong enough? There has been criticism of the government in uh, a lot of media in different forms as well. Uh, do you believe that they have taken the right approach thus far? Um I think they could still do more, but um, the initial response was very limited. I mean, to only sort of target three uh, individuals who were already aware they were going to be targeted uh, wasn't that sort of um, seriously underwhelming. But the, um, the stuff that was announced in Parliament yesterday um, was better. We'll, we'll see um, legislation on things like... Um, unexplained wealth orders and um, economic crime that we've been brought forward. So those things we very much welcome, uh, but we need to see some serious sanctions that will uh, hurt um, Russia being applied. Um, I mean, they may also hurt the UK and um, other countries that take part in that. But I think we need to have a united front on this to put the maximum pressure on Russia. So um, the short answer is, um, it's a good start, but we need to see more. One of the other biggest talking points this month has been the fact that we seem to be truly entering a, a post-COVID stage. All the COVID restrictions have now been removed by the government. Were you happy to hear this from the government or have you joined in with some of the critical voices over this matter? I think it's still a bit early to lift all restrictions. Um, um, and I'm very concerned about the lack of testing as well, because it, once testing ends, then you, you will get more people who don't know they've got symptoms who are mixing quite freely in an environmental pass on COVID. Um, so that's obviously concerning as well. Um, I, I hope we have come to an, to an end of um, COVID for now, but if we have to reintroduce restrictions in the future because of some other variants, then that would be really concerning. So uh, I, I would have preferred a more cautious approach. But uh, well, let's see what happens. When I spoke to, to Bim Afalami about this, because I felt it was fair to, to give all parties insight into this, uh, I explained to him that some people have been critical about the Prime Minister's approach in terms of this, just to appease party members during a time of serious pressure. Do you believe that this was more of a political move uh, when often the government say that they're going with the science? Well, I, I haven't seen the science on this, why we should uh, remove things uh, quicker. So um, if the government said going with the science, I haven't been convinced that that's what they have been doing. So um, 
So again, I think that this has been done in partly to um, save Boris Johnson's position by appealing to the um, the I don't know the COVID um, research group or whatever they're called that that um, want all restrictions lifted and didn't want any restrictions applied in the first place. So, um, but I think that's a very dangerous game to actually use political expediency uh, over trusting the uh, science. So I'm, um, uh, yeah, very skeptical as to why it's been done and why it's been done now. And I do think it is more about saving Boris Johnson's skin than anything else. Well, on the issue of testing, uh, not all free testing has been removed. There are some groups in society that will still get free testing. What would Labour's plan have been then to continue some sort of free testing system? Because uh, as, uh, again, I discussed with Bim Afalami, the, the cost of continuing the testing system as it currently is would be astronomical uh, and huge. And in terms of the recent kind of tax rises, it would totally dwarf that. Or do you think that's the wrong approach to take to this argument? I mean, if you... Well, there's also a cost in not testing as well, because it will mean that uh, the virus is more likely to spread if you're not testing people, because people may be asymptomatic and be spreading the virus. Uh, and the cost on, um, you know, in, in human costs on people's lives, as well as uh, the burden on the NHS, might well exceed what it would have cost to do a lateral flow test at home. So, um, so you know, there's different ways of looking at that. Um, I mean, I think eventually you would have to um, reduce the number of tests, but I think also because it's not following the science, I think that's the, uh, I would have kept the testing for a lot longer than the government are, the free testing. Finally, the Prime Minister said that the British public will now be at their own discretion whether to make decisions to go to work if they are ill or not. And uh, all those sorts of decisions are now up to them. And that he hopes that the British public will take on a German kind of approach because they are, as he said, much more disciplined about not going to work if they are sick. Uh, however, will you pressure the government to follow suit and maybe copy the German model by offering people 100% of their pay when calling off sick? Yes, I think I, that would be something we should be supporting because... Um, you will then get if if people will lose out if they uh, if they're off sick due to COVID, uh, especially when we've got a situation where we're facing uh, inflationary increases, um, so high cost of living, uh, fuel costs going up, uh, national insurance going up, so people are going to be squeezed anyway. So the idea they wouldn't get their full sick pay if they're off sick is is going is going to really worry them, especially if they're off sick with COVID. So they're more likely to go to work and more likely to spread it. And if they spread the virus, then that could kill people. So I think um, some government should definitely sort of consider um, introducing um, because I think by not doing it, then um, people could potentially be at risk and possibly die as a result of people having to go into work because they don't want to lose out because they've got very little left over because of the cost of living crisis. Uh, again, just to, to give fairness to the discussion, when I discussed this with him, he said that it would be impractical to offer 100% sick leave and that it would have unintended 
negative effects. Um, do you believe this at all, Bambosaur, or do you think that this is something really necessary going forward, whether COVID is about or not, to, to give fairness to uh, maybe an unequal system? Well, I, th- I think we do need to look at uh, fairness because ideally you'd want people to test and not be penalised for, you know, having the being cautious enough to acquire a, uh, a testing kit. And, you know, even if it's, uh, say, £6 or whatever, that's, um, if, you, if, you, if you do it on a regular basis, then it could amount up and it could be uh, a huge number for people who um, are on on very low incomes. I think that's also a concern. Let's move it to the Conservative Party chair, Oliver Dowden. Uh, He has said this month that the West should not be obsessing over pronouns or seeking to decolonize mathematics in a speech denouncing what he called painful woke psychodrama. Uh, He gave his speech to the Heritage Foundation, which is a foundation that is a popular conservative think group in America, but they also do support climate change denial, tax on LGBTQ rights, bans on free speech, and the group have also peddled the very damaging right-wing extremist lies over voter fraud in the USA. Your fellow MP uh, Nadia Whitmore has said that Oliver Dowden has some cheek to claim it's the left trying to divide society and limits people's freedom. Uh, I've talked to Bim about this matter, but do you feel on? Uh, do you feel worried that the government is actually getting involved in areas of legitimate free speech? Uh, very much so. I mean, there there is there is an issue here about uh, misinformation. We've had lots of uh, posts being put up by or being taken down by social media companies, but the um, lots of conspiracy theories about uh, the vaccine and about other things which um, um, have been allowed to flourish. And I think, I think ideally, I mean, free speech is free speech, but there are certain limitations about sort of um, whether it incites people to do certain things, uh, whether it's causing problems. So, um, so I think those are limitations we need to have in place. So if there is hate speech, then that shouldn't be allowed. If there are conspiracy theories, they should be taken down. We need to make sure things are factually accurate and not allow um, people who uh, uh, are clearly posting things that are untrue um, on social media that are proven to be sort of um, wrong. So I think we need to make sure that um, if people have different views, then that's fine. And, you know, you can certainly argue over different viewpoints, but, um, um, but trying to stifle debate is um, is a wrong thing, but if it's something that's deeply offensive and is um, going to cause, incite people and, and cause um, harm to people, then there certainly needs to be limits on that. In terms of the, the language maybe used by Oliver Dowden, the, what he's so-called the painful, woke psychodrama, I mean, do you believe that there is talking of truth any element of truth to this is is there such a thing as woke taking over no one i've spoken to like when i'm out door knocking raises this issue this is a pure um device by oliver cloud and by the tories to try and um create uh, an issue when there isn't an issue um nobody really cares about this on the doorstep when i speak to people 
they're concerned about um, the cost of living, they're concerned about um, police and they're concerned about things in their area. This is not uh, an issue that comes up on the doorstep at all. Um, and um, I don't know why he seems to be so concerned about it. He should be focusing his attention on other things perhaps. Uh, in terms of this then, again, speaking about the facts, when I spoke to BMF Alami about this, uh, I challenged the narrative. I said to him, if woke psychodrama or, or left-wing politics, as he kind of attached it to, were gaining popularity and were was such a, a threat to Western democracy, then surely in America we would have seen a growth of left-wing politics. In Britain, we would not have seen 12 years of conservative rule. And in Europe, we would not have seen right-wing uh, governments coming into places like Hungary uh, and, and other countries as well. And he conceded that maybe in, in the sense of electoral numbers, this does indicate that if there is such a thing as woke psychodrama, it is a minority issue. So why is it you know, becoming such commonplace to talk about it as, as a real issue uh, to you know, society as a whole, Bambos? I think the Tories want to create a wedge issue and they want to, people to focus on that issue rather than focus on the real policies. It's like the classic um, uh, example of talking about a dead cat. So it's like the focus and attention on something that is going to draw your attention away to what the real issue is. So the real issue should be the government's record, um, what they've, why we've got the, um, the increase in... Um, so let's move the discussions on to uh, local issues. Uh, it's been a sporting February for you, Bambos. You had visits to the Edmonton Eagles to view the boxing, and you had the delight of switching on the new floodlights at Conway Tennis Club. Will you use 2022 as a year to promote local sport? And is this something that Labour wants to invest in nationally? Uh, 100%. I mean, I've always been a bit of a sports fan, so... Um, I wasn't that good at football at school, so I ended up playing rugby. Um, but um, I'm, I'm a fan of boxing as well. Uh, and certainly, again, my tennis leaves a lot to be desired, but it's good to see the um, Conway Tennis Club, um, a, a lovely local club, flourishing in that way. So, yeah, I think we should be supporting our uh, sports clubs locally. And uh, I think you get so many benefits from playing sports. Um, so I'd encourage more people to be active and play sports um so yeah very much keen to promote that um so yeah if you see me um being active in other sports uh, I'll, I'll let you know <laughs> um let's move it then to again a local issue that you have been very vocal about and you've talked this month about the beliefs around the national leveling up plans you've said that it is actually maybe of a detriment to London. You said levelling up the UK cannot be levelling down London, but locally all we've seen recently is levelling down of financial support for Enfield. Do you believe that this funding has been used politically maybe to help Conservative votes? Well, it's actually, all it's doing is making London poorer. Uh, I think there's a desire to punish um, Sadiq Khan. Uh, TfL lost a huge amount of money uh, because of the um, COVID crisis, fewer people using the tube um, and buses and trains, people working from home. 
uh, and for the government not to be keen to willing to bail out TfL um, and forcing TfL to um, raise fares and um, raise the congestion charge is really um, quite sort of um, appalling. Um, if levelling up is making uh, uh, every making London poorer um, and not doing much in uh, other parts of the country, then it's really um, something that we seriously need to question. Uh, I mean, you look at the levelling up papers going on about sort of uh, ancient history. I mean, I'm sure everyone's um, keen to like sort of um, look at the walls of uh, Jericho, but um, but uh, in the context of how that fits with levelling up, it's um, it's probably just used as filler because there's not much to say about it by the government. And this is clearly a political tactic by them. What would be a fairer plan then that Labour would implement? Well, I think, you know, you have to recognise that um, TfL and, and other transport providers were in a state of crisis uh, because of the fall of passenger numbers. Uh, and they need to be given uh, a fair crack of the whip to allow them to um, recover uh, and not to penalise people who use public transport. Uh, I mean, if you're making them increase fares, um, then you're pushing more people onto the roads, which leads to more pollution, which is damaging to the health of um, uh, everyday Londoners, which is not a good thing. So, um, so I would say to them, think about it logically and give TfL um, the money that they need to allow them to uh, function properly. Yeah, so th this is the next question that I was actually going to discuss with you. Um, how worried are you as, as a London MP about this TfL funding crisis? I mean, there's talk of it going bankrupt or, or running out of money. I mean, how realistic is that option, though, Bambos? Well, I mean, if you can't plan ahead, if you keep sort of extending the funding of like for a few weeks and kicking the can down the road, that's not good. I mean, we've got to remember that many people rely on public transport to um, to get to work, to see the attraction. So, so public transport is vital to uh, London's economy. Uh, and bear in mind how much um, London um, provides for the rest of the country in the form of um, uh, GDP and everything. This is uh, an act of uh, sheer folly on, on, on the government. So um, I, I think it's crazy that they're going down this path because all they're doing is um, making it harder for people to work in London, which provides a huge amount of revenue for the government uh, and for the economy of the UK. In the worst case scenario, 100 bus routes face the acts, possibly 9% of all tube services. And talking of these discussions here again, maybe politically motivated decisions. One of our former Radio Verulam journalists, Cal Maris, has actually compared the TfL funding crisis to Brexit, talking about the politicisation of the transport infrastructure. Uh, and just to give facts to listeners, London is one of the only cities actually around the world where mass transportation system is not given funding by the government. The London model is mostly sustainable and it's much more profitable than comparable networks globally. But there is a, a funding crisis there, Bambos. I mean, 
how would Labour be able to fund that going forward? You know, the Conservatives are talking about fiscal responsibility in these situations. How would London's transport system be fiscally uh, conservatively managed? I think we need to recognise that the impact that the coronavirus has had. Uh, and I mean, when you've got, when you've, your budget is based on um, having a certain number of um, commuters uh, and you know, you've lost like two thirds of that uh, budget, and we're talking about big numbers here, then that is going to have an impact. And clearly the government needs to uh, help bail them out. And I think that over time, those numbers will return. So even if it's just a short term measure to help out TfL, that would be welcome. But to actually um, make it harder for people to travel by reducing the uh, bus and tube service is just bonkers. It's just rank stupidity. I do not see the logic in that. Um, because people rely on the tube to get to work. If the government are serious about tackling uh, air pollution, they would want to encourage more people to travel rather than force them to use uh, other means which are more polluting. So um, I do not understand the government's logic on this. Uh, It is madness uh, from my view and it is politically motivated and that is wrong. Uh, do you feel as well that the the narratives around TfL need to be challenged as well? A lot of discussion points are that Sadiq Khan has bankrupted TfL. This is something that Boris Johnson has charged the London Mayor with. And in retort, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan has branded Boris Johnson a liar. And again, just giving some facts to the listeners, uh, TfL published its accounts when Boris Johnson left being London Mayor, and it had a $9 billion debt then. In terms of the year just before coronavirus, that debt went up to $11.175 billion, but that's after £700 million worth of funding was removed from TfL. I mean, again, is this something that maybe voters need to be made more aware of, that it's not all just down to maybe one government, Labour, Conservative, but maybe years of mismanagement maybe at TfL. Well, let's have let's look at the facts. I mean, I'm certainly not um, fully aware as to you know what situation TfL was in in 2016, but um, let's look at Boris Johnson's record. I mean, if he was um, presiding over a 9.1 billion pound debt, then that's seriously troubling. Uh, and with debt, you can't just repay it all off in one foul swoop. If, uh, so there may have been things that would have uh, contributed to the increase in that debt. But clearly, I mean, you know, some of the stock in um, for some of the trains um, was very old and needed replacing. Um, and some of the signalling is old and needs replacing as well. So it's not as if you're just standing still. Anybody who owns a car will know that after a period of time, it needs to... Now you need new tyres, you need the oil to be changed, you'll need various other bits and pieces to make sure it keeps running reliably. And TfL is also one of those that needs its stock to be regularly updated and to get better technology to get better service for us. So, um, but let's have a debate about uh, London Transport. Let's look at the facts. I'm more than happy to engage with that. And I think you'll find that TfL have got uh, a very positive case to make uh, and but we shouldn't get into this mudslinging because it's really unhelpful. What people want is um, a really good service that is reliable, that gets them to and from work and um, entertainment at the weekends. 
Let's move to one of the Labour Party policies that you've discussed this month. You've called for a Race Equality Act. What would this legislation look like, Bambos? Well, we, we have a, a Sex Equality Act that was uh, passed in uh, the 1970s. So I think with uh, race equality, we want to make sure that people are not discriminated against because of their race. Um, and I think that needs to be put into uh, legislation. Um, because there are still uh, examples where uh, people uh, are not being treated fairly because of uh, their race. We've seen how there have been um, issues around treatment around COVID and around other areas. So we need to make sure that these, um, uh, and then there may be underlying reasons uh, why that happens. So for instance, maybe that there are more staff that are more public facing from a um, a BME background uh, and therefore more likely to contract coronavirus. But we need to make sure that um, uh, this is looked at and there is greater equality in how people uh, are treated. Uh, and I think a race equality act would be a good thing. Finally, in the last week, we've seen Storm Eunice across the country brought a lot of damage, but also Enfield experienced quite uh, a bit of problems too. Uh, if you've seen social media, it was kind of littered with images of fallen trees, damaged areas. But how affected has your constituents been, Bambos? And what kind of help can they get if they have been affected? Well, um, clearly it depends on what the impact's been. I, I think I think we've got a uh, pretty lightly compared to other parts of the country. So, I mean, I was in the office last Friday and it was uh, it was quite horrendous. It was really sort of, you know, I could barely sort of uh, close the door. It was so windy. Um, it was uh, quite tough. Going. So um, I think the, um, uh, I think if people have had problems, they should contact, uh, if it's to do with their homes, they should contact their insurers to see if that's something that they can name back. But if it's, uh, if it's an issue about sort of um, public uh, land, if it's uh, trees falling over uh, in their streets where the uh, where the pavements are, if there's some other sort of uh, damage in public areas, then that's more of an issue for the council. And so I've got asked them to contact the council. I think the council had some emergency contact details for those things, but I imagine most of those issues have been dealt with already. Let's move to the community questions then, and I hope people find that information useful in terms of Storm Unis because it has been uh, deeply worrying to the area. But uh, Tina has asked, Bambos, you've explained that Labour would boost the economy with 100,000 new apprenticeships. However, would Labour also remove unpaid work experience, which nearly 50% of young people have undertaken before they get paid work? Not sure where she got her 50% uh, data from so uh, I wouldn't like to say that is 100% fact but in terms of it a lot of young people do do it I know a lot of my friends have had to before they can get fully paid work I mean what is Labour's stance going to be on that one? Well I mean we need to distinguish the two so uh, work experience is work experience so it's usually a few days in the office just to get an understanding as to how things work but if, if you're actually doing what would amount to work uh, then you should be paid for it. So I'm very much of the view that um, you shouldn't allow people to do um, unpaid internships, for instance. 
uh, I think those um, because the, the reason why I'd be against that is because some people could afford to do um, uh, unpaid work, um, unpaid internships because they can rely on um, their families to provide them with the funding and support they need, but uh, other people may not be able to, even if it's just getting fares in and out of central London if they're working in. So it gives an unfair advantage to people that are already quite well off and have good connections. So I think with unpaid internships, I'd be against that. But I think work experience is fine uh, if it is proper work experience. And I would um, certainly encourage more people to allow kids to get work experience. In terms but, I, but I do appreciate the pressure that people are under to get any experience. And that's, that's what's complicating the situation. Okay, Bambos, uh, I guess, like you said before, you don't want the Conservatives to, to steal any of your ideas. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, let's move it to Michael's question, though. And it, he's written quite a scathing email to me this month. Um, he said, the local council are becoming a bit of a joke. The LTNs are causing more pollution through gridlock traffic. And now Enfield Council has been exposed as one of the worst in London for being eco-friendly. The Enfield Council ranked 23rd among London boroughs for its response to the climate emergency. CE UK used 28 questions to assess UK Council's climate action plan and the Enfield Council achieved a score of 46% and scored zero marks in two categories. Um, so Michael has asked, how can anybody take their plan seriously when they cannot even follow their own rules on climate change. Climate change is the biggest danger to all life on earth and authorities are wasting time. We need much more effective leadership. I mean, it's a very scathing uh, email there from Michael. Uh, do you agree with those sentiments? Do you believe that the Enfield Council need to be doing more? Well, I mean, clearly, I, mean, I don't know what the measures were of this, um, um, of the Climate Emergency UK um, survey but um there's always room for improvement so i very much hope enfield uh, is able to improve and uh, get high scores in in those uh, metrics in the future um but uh, i do know that enfield are very keen to take climate change seriously so i'm sure they'll listen to any criticism and act on it um and um you know we'll see what's how they perform in the future but Certainly, if that's been brought to their attention, I hope they do take note and um, uh, get more proactive in tackling climate change. Some things take a bit longer to implement than others, but uh, hopefully we'll see an improvement in Enfield's ranking next year. Is this something on a, a party level as well? You know, you're expressing your own individual sentiments there, but is this a commitment that the Labour Party will be making soon or again is this something that you don't want to reveal too much well, about? Well we've got council elections coming up on the uh, I think it's the 5th of May uh, and um, yeah and on the 5th of May before then all parties will be publishing their manifestos so I'd hope to see um, a strong commitment uh, by Enfield in relation to climate change uh, and environmental issues, because those are really important, certainly to me, but also to local residents. So um, I'm sure those manifestos will be published in the next three or four weeks. So let's see what they say. Richard has brought it on to uh, another 
cause that you are fighting for this month. He says, Bambos, I really appreciate you highlighting the cause of children with autism like my son. How would Labour help any autistic children? What kind of support do you think should be prioritised? Um, well, the, the first debate I ever had in Parliament that was in my name was about uh, autism. So it was about the... Um, it was about the time it takes from referral by a GP to diagnosis, because there were huge disparities across the country. So making sure kids are diagnosed early on is very important, but also making sure that, um, that special educational needs funding uh, is, um, that there's more of it. And that's the campaign that the National Autistic Society is very keen to promote. Uh, and also making sure we have more speech and language therapists uh, as well to assist uh, children in their um, education health pathways to make sure they get um, the support they need in, in mainstream school. Um, so um, a quick diagnosis, more funding uh, and more speech and language therapists would be um, three things I'd be very keen to, um, to see happen. Andrew has said, I'm disappointed that Sadiq Khan has rejected a support hub for cladding crisis red residents. Uh, is there any way that you could change his position, Bambos? If not, could you convince our local council to introduce something similar? We are in desperate need. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, I'm happy to follow it up for uh, Andrew. What I encourage Andrew to do is to get in touch with me uh, and I will um, see what can be done there. But it does sound like a good idea. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, off the top of the head here, uh, of your head here, Bambos, um, I know that you might not know this, and so uh, it might not be fair to ask this, but do you know how many people in the Enfield area that would be affected by the sort of defective cladding that we've seen at Grenfell Tower? Uh, I, I don't, but... Um, um, and the problem is in my area, there aren't uh, that many high-rise uh, blocks. Um, I don't know the answer, but it's certainly something the council would have. So I, again, I can find that out, but we we do have a lot more blocks in the east of the borough in Edmonton and uh, Enfield North. Um, so, but I, I think the council would have those figures. I don't have them at the, at the top of my head. And uh, in the next question I'm gonna ask, you know, uh, fellow, MP, uh, Enfield MP, Farrell Clark, and uh, has been discussing on an issue that you've been talking about. But is this something that maybe with uh, Kate Osman, Farrell Clark, that you, you could unify on something together? Because the residents in these sorts of uh, high rise or, or even normal kind of residents have been suffering for, for a long time, causing a lot of emotional and financial distress. Um, what... Uh, is this something that maybe you could all unite together on and, and put together a support hub, even even if it's not on a grander scale like that Sadiq Khan has kind of not allowed in London, at least maybe a, a, an Enfield-wide one, at least? Oh, I'm happy to explore that with Ferrell and uh, with Kate, so certainly something we can uh, all look at. Uh, I don't know how it would work, but, um, you know, I would say, well, let's have a look at it and see See, see what the need is. Uh, I know some places have got a lot more problems in Enfield, but there may well be a need for it in Enfield. So it'd be a question to see if it's something that's, um, 
we would need to have more people in, involved in it to make it happen. Um, Rita has moved the discussion on, as I've just mentioned, to comments made by your fellow Labour MP and Enfield MP Farrell Clark, who has said that we need to change the law on gambling. Farrell Clark has cited the problems that she believes it brings to the area. Rita has asked, though, is it fair to put the blame uh, on law-abiding private enterprises? It seems an odd choice as people enjoy gambling, and it may be better to uh, offer an option to support people with gambling addictions. By making gambling more restrictive, you could drive it underground and making it harder to reach those in need. What do you feel about Rita's comments, Bambos? Uh, I think she has a point out to a degree. I think there is um, a certain level of um, personal choice in embarking on gambling. So um, if, like me, the only time you gamble is at the weekend when you're doing your uh, five-team accumulator football <laughs> matches, then, um, um, and it's just for fun, then that's that's fine. But uh, if you're if you are if you do find it addictive and there are there's clear evidence that gambling can be incredibly addictive then there needs to be protections in place uh, to make sure that people don't get hooked on it i know people have uh, committed suicide because of the debts they've accrued through gambling gambling can be unbelievably uh, addictive as people try to win back money that they've lost so i do think we need to have protections there because not Sometimes people can't always help themselves. Uh, and gambling is far more prevalent now. I mean, every, you know, after nine o'clock, so many adverts are about gambling, uh, whether it's, um, you know, playing online bingo or whether it's, um, I don't know, um, betting on football or horse racing or uh, other events. Uh, there seems to be a lot of gambling ads uh, out there to entice people to gamble. And the only people who win at gambling um, are the bookies. They always win. Um, so um, uh, I do think we need to have protections. And maybe there does need to be a look at the gambling legislation, which is um, 16, 17 years old and uh, probably didn't envisage the explosion of online gambling that already that has happened. So. Uh, I know there's a review going on with the government, so maybe we need to uh, chase up what's happening with the review and make sure it's uh, fit for purpose for modern day. The final question for this month is from Angela. Uh, we had actually a lot of messages about this. She's asked, Bambos, please, please tell us what we can do about the Cockfosters Station Towers. How can it be approved after 2,800 objections? And just to add context to uh, Angela's question there. There's 14,000 people that live in the area. That means about 20% of residents have signed their complaints. Uh, Bambos, uh, you've kind of spoken your thoughts on this issue, but yeah, uh, is there anything that Angela can do as a resident of the area? Um, so I spoke at the planning committee uh, back in early February um, about this issue. Um, I think it was the 3rd of February. Um, so it was planning committee, uh, I and um, Theresa Biddy's MP for Chipping Barnet and um, I think eight other residence groups and other individuals spoke about the reasons for their objection, for the, why it should be turned down. Unfortunately, it was approved by the chairs casting votes. Uh, so it was tied at six votes each, so which was really galling. Um, uh, I, 
I have serious concerns about this uh, because I think that when if you go up to Cockfosters, even at the best of times, there's usually a queue on Cockfosters Road. Uh, this will make matters a lot worse, and it will also have an impact on local services. Um, so I have serious reservations about the um, why this scheme shouldn't go ahead. Uh, so I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to go ahead. Um, I understand that one of the residents who was um, a lawyer for a, a firm, a, quite a big firm, was threatening judicial review if the um, application was approved. I probably need to check in with that resident to see if uh, that was something he was planning to do. Uh, if not, I certainly um, would consider writing to uh, Michael Gove, the Secretary of State, for um, for planning to um, to ask him to call in the decision. But I don't do anything that would hinder the um, uh, any judicial review of the application. So I think I think realistically, it's um, just contacting local groups and seeing what they're doing about it. But um, otherwise, it, planning permission has been granted, and they're uh, free to build, which is uh, which will change the character of the area. And it's uh, quite sad to um, to see that happen. In terms of it, then, Bambos, I've looked into this situation, and uh, planning officers at the Civic Centre admitted the proposed scheme failed to align with local policies on tall buildings, heritage assets, as well as London plan policy on open space. But despite this, they claimed that the benefits would outweigh negative impacts. Um, so can you see those positives uh, in the area, or do you believe conversely to what the council have concluded that the negatives outweigh those positives? Um, I do accept that people need to have accommodation. Um, and I think this scheme is a bit better than others like the Southgate Office Village, which is a terrible scheme. Um, but I do think that the, um, I think the negatives uh, far outweigh the positives in relation to this scheme. Uh, I think there will be uh, an adverse impact on the area uh, and it will be felt for many years to come. So I, I just have serious reservations about this and uh, I, my preference would have been for it not to have been passed at all. And what hope does this give to residents in the future? You know, if there's other kind of construction that they object to uh, again we want to remain neutral here you know like i've explained there there could be positives there there can be negatives to this but what kind of hope does it give when 2800 or 14000 people in the area have complained against this that their voices were not heard i think you have to take each application as it comes so with the southgate office village development uh, that was rejected by the council unfortunately it was approved on appeal but so uh, that also had lots of opposition from the local community which i was very pleased about um so i think i think it all depends on the application um so uh, i know it's really disheartening when an application is passed but i'd encourage people to still make representations because um they do get listened to i certainly listen to representations from my constituents um, and you can stop applications from being passed. 
So I would say don't lose heart and just fight each um, fight each application on its merits and but not to lose heart. Is this something that maybe Labour, if they came to power, would address at all? Do you believe that there needs to be a change in legislation? Um, I think so, because the government were looking to weaken the public's voice in some of the legislation they were bringing forward. Um, and I think we do need to make sure people's voices um, are heard. Um, so certainly um, having more support for uh, the local civic community um, to be able to put forward their arguments um, has to be a good thing. Um, so yeah, I hope we do support more, do make it easier for groups to uh, object and challenge uh, applications as they arise. Well, Bambos, as always, it has been useful to talk to you. I hope the people of the area have found it interesting and gleaned some good information from this. But as always, thank you so much for your time this month. And we will see you again next month so people can send in their messages. But for now, we wish you the best of luck and the best of health. And we will see you again very soon. Thank you, Jason.